This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hi, this is Rebecca Bingham, Parker's cousin. Today on It's Been a Minute, Beyonce is back and it's time to dance. Plus, a new comedy sketch finds humor in social performance. All right, here's the show. Hey, y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm B.A. Parker, and my guest Josh Gwynn and I are riding high this week. Hi. Hi, Josh. How's it going? <laughs> How are you doing? I'm good. I mean, I'm even better now because Beyonce dropped a new song this week. Ring the alarm. Calling all of the beehive. Get information. When was the last Beyonce, Beyonce? 2016, Josh. Have, has it really been that long? Lemonade came out when Obama was still president. Yikes. Josh is an audio producer and host of the podcast Back Issue. And when Beyonce dropped her new track, Break My Soul, they and I both blew up our Twitter feeds freaking out over how good it was. I love the fact that she is the catalyst for escapism, right, by directly interacting with the thing that we all need mental and physical escape from, the pandemic, right? Oof. It's like she looked outside and looked at her watch and was like, it's 1235. Like, how do my people feel at this exact moment right now? And everybody said, tired, <laughs> burnt out, <laughs> exhausted. Yeah. Like, I just, I when this song came out, all of my group chat, and I mean, if Beyonce had, like, remember that time that Beyonce, like, told us all to go watch Good Morning America, and we were like, oh, it's new music, and she was like, I'm vegan. <laughs> <laughs> and then everyone tried to be like, cute and be vegan exactly, for two weeks, exactly. and then realized that they liked cheeseburgers. Yeah. Exactly. I Like, my group chats would blow up if Beyonce did anything, but this was, like, the first time that my group chats blew up, and everyone was like... Is Beyonce in my Google Docs? Can she see my two weeks notice that I've been drafting for the last two months? Um, how does she know exactly what I'm feeling? Josh is a Beyonce fan, but they're also an expert on the history of house music, which is relevant here because this new Beyonce track is dripping with influence from house music. And coincidentally, so is the new Drake album called Honestly Nevermind. But here's the thing. Beyonce and Drake are cisgendered straight people, and house music comes from specifically Black and Latino queer spaces. Today, Josh and I are exploring those roots and asking what it means for these huge pop stars to borrow music from a community they don't necessarily belong to. I grew up in Baltimore in the 90s, and you couldn't miss house music. I remember classics like Black Box's Everybody, Everybody. Ooh, makes me want to dance. And CC Peniston's Finally. My mom just, like, felt the urge to sing Finally on the phone today. Mm. Like, that's how ubiquitous house music has been. And also because, I mean, I grew up in Baltimore in the 90s, so mm -hmm. Baltimore club music 
um, is a big genre. Like even mm-hmm. to this day, like every Friday and Saturday night on ninety two Q, you gotta listen to like nineties <laughs> club music, mm-hmm. and it's it's such a a black space, such a queer space. Mm. But I am curious of what the origins are overall for for house. I think that there's three different things that you have to think about when you're thinking about like where house music comes from. Mm-hmm. First is like thinking about that time, like the late 70s, early 80s, you have like the death of disco. You have people who are really, really mm-hmm. angry <laughs> by the fact that like this art form that black and Latino and queer people have used to like as escapism um has become so ubiquitous and so successful so people are rolling over albums and they're talking about how much disco sucks and um death to disco death to disco and so house really is born from these ashes and then secondly you have this moment in time that's like really marked by like a big boom in music technology mm-hmm. like DJs and producers have these new synthesizers and these new ways to sample sounds and these new ways to make drum patterns that have become a lot more accessible. And then thirdly, you have these innovators specifically in Chicago, like DJ Ron Hardy and DJ Frankie Knuckles that were there and they brought their sensibilities from being a part of the queer community and hanging out in these drag scenes to the music that they were making. And Uh I mean, this is music that like people were dancing to in clubs and also dancing to while really bad things were happening, right? <laughs> like, like the late seventies, like through the eighties. Um, I mean, can you think of anything that happened to the queer community in the eighties? I um, can that think make of it... <laughs> a, a few things. Yeah. So, like, this is music that is is escapism. It's music that allows you a place to live when outside feels like too much. I mean, you've already answered this a bit now, but like how how has house music become such a beloved and necessary part of queer communities of color? I think because it's seen communities through some of the hardest times. Like when you think about like the 80s and the AIDS crisis and people literally like falling dead around you, like and mm. you don't know what it is. You don't know why it is. You have a government that won't even say its name, right? Like, um, mm. sound familiar. And you have these people around you that you love and and they're disappearing and they're 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 dying. And you also are just trying to to make it to the next day. Like you're like uh there's a lot of like, you know, economic sort of stratification that's happening in the 80s that 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 people are trying to to survive through um which also feels very reminiscent of now um Mm -hmm. and so when you're working your nine to five like beyonce says and you are tired because they're working you so hard all you want to do is like go hang out in a place where you feel affirmed where you feel like everyone knows everyone sees you for who you are and that's fine and it's great and it's celebrated and you can dance until you are exhausted the first song i think about when i think of house music is a song called follow me mm. by like alias mm-hmm. because it's still a song again in baltimore it is played all the time 
you see all the old heads doing hand dances to it and just spinning mm-hmm. each other around. Mm-hmm. And if so, when I think of house music, I get like this warm feeling in my tummy because I'm like, it mm-hmm. feels it feels nice. And I am curious because there is this um. It seems to be like a resurgence of house music, particularly in the mainstream, because right before Beyonce's Break My Soul came out a few days before, uh, Drake's new album came out. Honestly, never mind. Honestly, never mind. How do you feel about the title? (laughs) I mean, it's... Don't manifest that over your art? Yes, and not over something that's supposed to have like house music on it, but you know, that's neither here nor there. But okay. This is my question because mm-hmm. from my side of the table, Drake's album doesn't totally feel like house because it still feels like Drake and his feelings. And he just he just found mm. a new um, lily pad to jump on from, you know, from like the, the, the Caribbean music he was listening to from the other people. I mean, I always think of Drake as the Carmen Sandiego of the Black Diaspora. Listen. Like, I always think of him as going to the different places and the different islands and the different clubs and the different subcultures and being like, I like that. And, <laughs> you know, putting together a team and being like, how do we how do we build this out? You know? You know I gotta bring a G block. You know I gotta bring a D block. Because you know how sticky it get. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, I got to push back because there's a big elephant in the room. Are Beyonce and Drake appropriating? You'll be surprised by the answer. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. Big news stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them. In your pocket. Download the NPR app today. We all hear things differently, and that can be tough when there's so much noise. This election year, we're a space to speak up and to listen. Listen to 1A for the latest on election 2024, only from NPR. Okay, this is my question when it comes to superstars like Beyonce and like Drake, who are still, you know, cishet superstars um, mm-hmm. that are um, leaning into a genre that is so undeniably uh, queer and bring it into the mainstream. Would it be considered appropriative? Hmm. Um, or do we just leap over that and just like enjoy the vibes? Am I overthinking it? 
No, I don't think you're overthinking it. It's something that I think about a lot. But I also think that with Beyonce, it functions in a different way because of who her audience is. Mm. Like, I remember when Check Up On It from the Pink Panther soundtrack came out. And I remember when she says, like, in one of the verses, she goes, You think that I'm teasing, but I ain't got no reason. I sure that I can please you. But first, I gotta read you. And I was like, read you? Like, <laughs> I, the only people that I ever heard in my life use that word were queer people. Um, talking about, like, you know, the moment where you have to tell somebody about themselves, where you have to, like, get somebody together and you you read them. You and that know? was 17 years ago. So long ago. Like, then I remember in Formation, that was the first time that I feel like she worked with Big Frida. And a lot of people were talking about how it was, a, like, a reclamation of her Southern heritage and her heritage as, like, you know, someone from Houston and bounce music mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. But, like, the queer aspect was never... Um, lost on me and speaking of big frida like big frida is someone who's worked with both of these people she worked with drake on nice for what she worked with beyonce on formation like i said and so i guess when i'm when you're bringing up questions around appropriation my hope for this new era is that we don't have like a repeat of what happened last time when she when big frida who you know is this huge representative kind of stand-in artist for when people think of mm-hmm. bounce music and is has like a very like non-binary presentation and is always wearing um the best hair the best bundles the best fashion um that when um but when you looked at those videos nice for what and formation big frida mm-hmm. wasn't there Right. Like you it felt like the music just wanted her voice, just wanted what she stood for, but like not the totality of her. And so I'm hoping that in this new song, um, Break My Soul, that Big Frida is all up in the video. Because it reminds me of another time in uh, another time in which house music was making like, you know, was super ubiquitous um, when, like, the time that you referenced mm-hmm. in the early '90s, like the CNC music mm. factories, and you had you have Martha Walsh, right? Who is the voice? Like the voice, comes the up, queen. She will make the queen. any room shake with that voice. Shake, and she comes up in a group called Two Tons of Fun um, because they're two big girls, and mm-hmm. they turn their name into the Weather Girls, and they come out with "It's Raining Men." And she is singing these anthemic hooks on these house numbers that are, they are the number. Like, these hooks are the number, right? And, like, gonna make you sweat. Like, I got the power. And they refused to put her in the music videos because her body Im- her body image didn't fit the aesthetic that they were um they were interested in. And so like, as we dip back into this discourse about the discourse about house music, Mm -hmm. I hope we do it right this time. And queer people are like, you know, a little bit more centered in Mm -hmm. the way that the music looks. And I'm kind of heartened uh, because Katrinata like is this great DJ producer who makes great house music. And he was the first black person, the first queer person to ever win a Grammy for Best Dance Slash Electronic Album. In 2021, last year, 
that's wild. <laughs> right? Like, imagine, like, for 15 years, every hip-hop record went to, like, someone that wasn't, you know. Uh, I mean, not far off. Not but. far off, but <laughs> that is, that's wild to me when you think about the foundation with which electronic dance music stands. Right. It is so black. It is so queer. And for for that legacy to kind of be diluted that's also a fear that i have again with house music reaching the mainstream is that we forget the origins and then we get after k trinata another like 15 16 years of um non-black non-queer people winning the grammy because we don't remember the origins of the music yeah, and I think it's kind of something that's inevitable when you have someone who has the type of visibility and positionality within the culture that Beyonce mm-hmm. has. I think, though, it kind of reminded me of, like, your question earlier around, like, how is what Drake is doing different from what Beyonce is doing? Mm-hmm. And one of the things, when you look at their discographies and you look at, like, their their the music that they've come out with... It does feel like Drake's at Costco and he's getting free samples um, and he's just sampling different things and he likes different things. And I mean, whether that's good or a good thing or a bad thing, like that's up to you. But like that does feel like what he's doing with Beyonce, though, it has always felt like it feels a lot more authentic when Beyonce is experimenting with a genre because she's doing it to figure out who she is and what who her people are and how her family fits into that. And that just feels better. I understand. Okay. I'm going to push back just a little. Mm-hmm. Again, please don't cancel me. I'm, I'm a <laughs> young woman trying to pay her bills. But, um, <laughs> but there's also been a discussion because this is June. This is pride month. This like these having yeah. both of these, like these house oriented works Feels like placation. Feels like they're just trying to opportunistic, being opportunistic and trying to profit off of like the queer community because this is the month where every corporation does so anyway. Hi, gay. (laughs) (laughs) How do you overcome that argument? Because I can see where there, where like some of these that argument is coming from. Mm -hmm. But I also a, a part of me is like. But come on, it's Beyonce. It just feels like an authenticity question. If, like, Lady Gaga is like, you know, I, like, want to put out a pride mix for this thing. It's part of it, her brand. I mean, that's the, like, you know, capitalistic way to say it. It's I'm part sorry. of her brand. I'm sorry. <laughs> but she is always like, this is for the girls and for the gays. Yeah, yeah and the theys. And it feels authentic it feels real and so like i am not at a place where i'm gonna be like you know like unless you are a queer person you cannot touch house music like Mm -hmm. i don't know whether that's something that i would would say but i would say that if you are not someone who understands the origins of this music and understands who made this music and understands the the situation in which it came to be and who continues the traditions of this music and whose ears perk up when they hear this music referenced and why, then don't touch it. 
Josh, thank you so much for talking to me. And I'm going to bother you when the album, when Beyonce's album comes out. Oh, I'm here. Like, <laughs> it's, I'm down. That was Josh Gwynn, host and producer of the podcast Back Issue. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, Kate Berland and John Early are going to make you laugh your butt off with their new sketch special. Feel like the world is on fire? Shortwave is your antidote. We find joy and beauty in the science of the planet we live on. How people are taking action in the face of climate change. The many weird and wonderful ways animals have adapted to a changing world in the past and present. And how technology is pushing us forward. Listen now to the Shortwave Podcast from NPR. What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast, Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Listen to Track Change from Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR Network. Numbers that explain the economy. We love them at the Indicator from Planet Money. And on Fridays, we discuss indicators in the news, like job numbers, spending, the cost of food, sometimes all three. So my indicator is about why you might need to bring home more bacon to afford your eggs. I'll be here all week. Wrap up your week and listen to the Indicator podcast from NPR. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. When I spoke with my next guest, they could not stop praising each other. In fact, when they met doing a stand-up show in New York, they say they just knew they'd do great things together. She's one of our greatest living improvisers, if not the greatest. John's one of the finest comedic voices we have and will ever have. It was just instant. It was true love. It was. That's John Early and Kate Berland. They're comedians, actors, and the co-executive producers of a new sketch comedy special on Peacock called Would It Kill You to Laugh? And as much as they appreciate each other offscreen, part of what makes the special so funny is that they act like they can't stand each other. It is sort of contained around this theme of imagining a world where John and I are the most famous, lauded comedians in the history of entertainment. We're globally renowned, and we suffered a very public falling out, and this special is this reunion. I love the way you're, the shading, and you finally found a foundation that matches. You know, it's so funny, obviously, I haven't seen you yeah. in years. Yeah, I know, years. Um, you know, I haven't years. seen you in person. Yeah, <laughs> years. Um, I haven't seen you in person, but I also haven't seen you just kind of reflected anywhere in the culture. So what have, what have you been up to? But there are so many other great self-contained sketches in the special, too. I talked to John and Kate about their favorite jokes and some of the psychology behind them. Enjoy. There's one bit that I've been thinking about for the past week, and I just need to know how you came up with it because I've been telling my friends about it so that they can, when they watch the special, just be prepared for it. <laughs> um, so there's like this ongoing bit where you both play two people out to dinner and there's just like a little tensions between the characters as they're, as they're paying. And like um, in one sketch, the, the friend is being shady and about never paying the bill. And another, Kate, you're like, you're in boy drag and it's dude's lunch hour. 
and one of you will take a little pot <laughs> as a, a, a form of payment. One of you will take like a little pot and melt some caramel in it and drizzle it over the check. Oh, uh, do you take hot caramel? Of course, yeah. Oh, of course. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. He insisted. I surrender. <laughs> I insist. I just need to know where that idea came from because I will mention it during my dinner tonight. Thank God. Oh my God. I mean, it's so funny hearing people describe it. I know, I love it. It's like very, it's it's wild to hear it in plain language because that is in fact what happens. It's, <laughs> that is really just an inside joke. That's like a joke that John and I have been doing for a million years, which is just imagining a world where caramel is money and you're paying at the end of a bill with caramel. Like hot and caramel. so With hot caramel. It, it, it sounds really nice in the mouth too, going, do you take hot caramel? Like you really have to wrap your mouth around the two words. And it makes us laugh. You know, it's a, it's a deep, deep cut for the friendship. And we, but we thought for the special, it would be a great way for us to kind of do sketches where we get to play with like anxieties around paying yes. the bill, you know, like, like social performance around paying the bill. And, and, and also Kate and I just love any sort of sketch that takes place in a restaurant and all the kind of um, social anxiety that comes up in that scenario. But also as we were like, shooting it i mean i don't think it was until we really shot that that we were like oh this is also maybe a subconsciously trying to address like cryptocurrency (laughs) yeah yeah john you give real when you say caramel you have real jeff daniels energy Ooh, well i look like him too yes i do look like jeff daniels and like over the airwaves you give like real jeff daniels oh my god well caramel i think is how southerners say it right caramel caramel (laughs) Oh, gosh. But what I really like about your special is, like, almost every sketch centers on uncomfortable or passive interactions or what you just said of, like, social performance between characters, but always with this absurdist edge. And what is interesting or funny for you both about these kind of interactions between people? I think we're always interested in characters who are kind of can't hide their true emotions but are trying to and sort of when that social performance fails when people are trying to be polite or trying to connect but in fact can't help but show their hostility or fear (laughs) or competitive energy so that's something that we're we always return to (laughs) yeah kate and i you know though you know we can write a joke or two i think we're not very like our first I think entry point into comedy is more just like psychological dynamics. Yes. I really don't want to use the word toxic because they're not all toxic. Some of them I think are very tender, <laughs> but um, yeah, just complex, complicated yeah. dynamics between yeah. two people. <laughs> Your comedy also feels very generational and specific. There is a truth in your comedy about the worst, most shallow iterations of white millennials. And that's something you've done in your other work too. Like, search party a tv dramedy you were both in Mm -hmm. what draws you to that or what kinds of people or situations have inspired your characters well i i think that we are always just coming from a very instinctive place of just what makes us laugh like this special in particular we were really trying to just kind of choose seven or eight dynamics or you know premises that really just made us laugh you know and it's only later when we're like editing and watching things that we, you know, realize that we're, of course, people existing in a, give, in a specific time. <laughs> you know, we absorb the zeitgeist and can't help but kind of 
play it back a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. So it really feels the commentary is always like incidental to us. Like things, a lot of the stuff we do gets described as like satire or social commentary. And to us, it's literally just like things that are making us like scream, laugh at dinner. It's just things that make you laugh. Yeah. Yeah. Truly. Yeah. Yeah. I love satire as well. I think it's just never what what we think we're doing, <laughs> like a, like yeah. a kind of an overt attempt at sapphire at sapphire at satire. Oh, interesting, the sapphic. the sapphic quality of my work. <laughs> but there is, yeah, it, it's a thing of kind of like you know if you go into something going I'm going to make a comment on this, it so often fails. Mm-hmm. Like I think like stuff that does that kind of has this like stench of that attempt on it. Um, if I may boldly separate our work from that. Yeah, like Book Club, I feel like, is a good example. Exactly. Like, to us, that felt like a kind of vaudevillian premise, you know? Like, we've been kind of trapped, all trapped in a world where everyone's just always trying to sound smart on Twitter, Oof. you know? So I think it ended up feeling... There are, just mo- there are moments in that sketch that feel, I think, like commentary that I think both of us are kind of delighted by, actually, but, like, it yes. wasn't intentional. Exactly, exactly. What did you think of the book? Where were you guys when you finished it? I'll start. Um, I remember being in my bedroom and getting to the end and going, <sighs> I felt like, for me, the book was so, was so, like, big. I kind of had this experience, like, kind of being like, I'm so little with the book, you know, kind of like, almost like crying. I love that sketch because I, years ago, had learned a trick of how to make it through a book club without having ever read the book. Ooh. What is it? You just learn the protagonist's name <laughs> and just be like, their journey really i love what they were trying to navigate totally <laughs> totally yeah and then navigate. that's it like paul like the way that paul navigated such um heartfelt hurdles totally really I, that's really, really got to me that's really funny cyrus dunham who's in that sketch who he's so good in it and you know he's like an accomplished writer and is in grad school and he was saying the same thing about it was like bringing up being in those academic environments when you haven't read it and kind of having oh, to yeah. like skirt by like you know it was just this like language which is definitely something I've done as well and as John said like everyone's kind of doing like everyone learns like four words no actual nuance or understanding but just kind of pure rhetoric all rhetoric all performance yeah yeah, yeah. and hopefully if anything it shows the sketch shows the um the humanity behind that the desperation behind that totally I do think those those people, those versions of you and me are very kind of sweet and innocent. Yes, yes. They were like, it came, like, you, you came into it, like, so just, like, innocently. And you know what? Like, the, the room turned on you. It was not your fault. Thank you. Thank you for once. <laughs> All right. So this is a question for both of you. We'll start with John. I want to hear your favorite character of Kate's from the special. Oh. And then Kate, what is your fa- what was the same to you about John? I really particularly am just kind of blown away by um Kate as the beaver mom. Yes. <laughs> uh, it just really rocks me to see like I mean cuz it's the polar opposite of what we're talking about. Like it's not a kind of coastal elite millennial using kind of um like academic language. It's middle america airport <laughs> like mom you know who's just like exhausted and you know was trying for once not to think about money until like a 
wealthier couple that always makes her feel awful like shows up you know like there's just something extremely uh universal and like beautiful about the tenderness like there's a moment in that sketch where you know kate like really takes this big swing and tries to show off about how we like just joined this very kind of exclusive concierge like skip the line service and then and then the other couple is like talking about how that's like a Oh, haven't you heard? It's like a scam, you know. You can bypass the whole line breeze and try to, to get there. The 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 it's not, it's not cheap, but it's worth kind of the peace of mind. We love it. Yeah. You've not read the article about Breezer? You didn't give him your credit card, did you? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, you're going to probably have your identity stolen. You're no, kidding. No. no, 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 you do not. And get Kate's, it. like, eyes drop to the ground, and she just looks, like, humiliated and, and, mm. and so sad. And it really, every time, that, that moment really breaks my heart. Let the compliment flow over you really quickly. Like, just let that, let that happen. I'm absorbing it. I've absorbed it. <laughs> well, I just wanted to be clear. Like, I want, they were describing that there's like an actual beaver who is that's <laughs> a mom. I mean, she is a beaver in the sketch. I, to be fair, I just got this note from my producer and it just made me giggle. Like, yeah, we have to explain to the NPR listeners that, yeah, Kate plays a beaver. And a beaver. John and I are beavers with our son at an airport. Everyone else is human. I, yeah okay there we go it's not like some kind of like hyperbole or anything. yeah yeah all right no no we truly are beavers we are beavers yes. <laughs> all right uh, kate same for you um well it very it really is difficult because john is so such an astonishing talent to act across from him is, is shocking um but i really really love john playing the girl in one of the hot caramel bits yes i left my hot plate at home i know exactly where it is it's in like the front hallway i can see it like in my mind's eye like it's literally on that little end table we have next to the front it's door it's okay i can get it i leave it there so that oh thank you it's not a problem i'm used to it what do you what do you mean by that that just destroyed me when we were shooting it but then also watching it and just the the nuance of his performance and the the transparent like this this the embarrassment on her on her face um so to let everyone know she's you know she's avoiding paying the bill and this is clearly something that's happened in their dynamic over and over again and her attempt to get out of that uncomfortable moment by throwing to some kind of personal tragedy um it makes me laugh i think it's so funny but also just john's sensitivity and the way he communicates so much just in his eyes is really beautiful to me that's lovely well i'm just gonna absorb it um <laughs> let it flow over you I'm, I'm gonna need a little more time with that kate berlant and john early thank you so much for talking with us thank you so much it was such a pleasure thank you so much for talking to us thanks again to kate berlant and john early their sketch special is would it kill you to laugh and is out now on peacock All right, this episode was produced by Barton Girdwood, Liam McBain, Chloe Weiner, and Janet Ujung Lee. Our intern is Ahianata Argan. Our editors are Jessica Mendoza and Quinn O'Toole. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. And our big boss is NPR senior VP of programming, Anya Grunman. All right, until next time, thanks for listening. I'm B.A. Parker. We'll talk soon.
For the seventh year on the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity go way beyond the day's headlines. Because we know what's part of every person is part of every story. We're bringing that perspective with new episodes every week. Listen on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. The news can be disorienting, and it can be really hard to remember how we got here. That's why we started the Throughline podcast. Every week, we take you on a cinematic trip into the past to better understand the present. Listen now to the Throughline podcast from NPR. Here at Planet Money, we bring complex economic ideas down to earth. We find weird, fun, interesting stories that explain the way money shapes our lives. Inflation, recessions, the price of gas, we've got you. Listen now to the Planet Money podcast from NPR. NPR. 